As we're kind of gearing toward our, our, our sermon series, uh, toward the book of Mark, uh, I was actually really struck uh, just a moment ago by the final song that, uh, that we just sang in the line. Uh, I said, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. And uh, just really hit by um, just that dynamic that, uh, number one, that we're seeing in the book of Mark of how Jesus is showing himself to these people. He is healing people, and he is doing so, as we've seen, to, to show and to prove his authority. And this is something for Jesus, if you will. It's for his glory. But then we get to gain from that. These individuals that are gaining healing from their infirmities, uh, these, and, and us as well, as we receive all the things that Jesus is doing for his own glory, he actually allows us to receive even eternal life for something that he is doing for his glory. And uh, it just really hit me. Uh, and even as we're, we're looking again into the, the life of Jesus, this life that we need to have before us all the time, uh, that that is a truth that, uh, that rings out. And so this morning, uh, we'll be taking a closer look at Mark chapter 2. We'll be reading all through chapter 2, and the first six verses of chapter 3 is going to be the text that we're going to be going through. But for our reading this morning, uh, we'll just be looking uh, specifically at verses 1 through 17. And so I would uh, invite you to please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Again, just an expression of our, um, again, of our coming under the authority and the teaching of, of God's Word as we stand This is Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately... Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, and there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, 
but sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, as we see this miracle of Jesus, and as we see him speaking and teaching, not just with his words, Lord, but also with his life, God, I pray that that your word would just capture our hearts as we see Jesus this morning. God, I pray that whatever hurdles and obstacles we might be having in our minds and our hearts, Lord, that you would remove them, God, so that uh, we would see Christ through your word, and Lord, so that we might come away changed, we pray and ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. St. Elmo's Fire. It's not, you know, the meme of Elmo burning on fire. It is not, uh, I'm referring to the cheesy 80s film with Rob Lowe and Emilio Estevez with a great soundtrack. It is a natural phenomenon which takes place around electrical thunderstorms. The science behind it is something that I don't fully understand, and the more I tried to read about it, I felt like the less I actually understood about it. Uh, So I'm going to simply read to you uh, what this one article is trying to describe what's going on. St. Elmo's fire is, with a growing storm, more and more charges from within a storm cloud creating friction in some portion of the storm. This friction creates powerful electric fields that extend from the cloud all the way to the ground, and an electric field breaks down the air into a plasma with a ton of voltage present. This voltage literally tears apart air molecules. Eventually, a corona discharge uh, occurs, which is seen as St. Elmo's fire. What it looks like, if you've ever seen images of this, is this typically like bluish light which can actually be seen on objects in the middle of an electrical storm. Uh, You'll you'll oftentimes see it on masts of sails, or you can even see it on the wings of airplanes as well as where you'll see it most often. Again, this bluish light, uh, which is actually visible, but is not dangerous in and of itself. And it's saved from the electrical storm that's going on around and the lightning that can later on come. The actual uh, St. Elmo's fire is not something that is harmful by itself. However, this, uh, with the St. Elmo's fire, the accompanying storm can obviously bring about a great deal of damage. And it's actually the visible sign, if you will, of the electricity in the air, which serves as a warning for sailors and for, pi- and for pilots that there is a storm that is near that has a great deal of electricity in it. And it was, in fact, back in the day, it was considered good luck for sailors when they would actually see it because they considered it as St. Elmo's warning. St. Elmo was the, uh, the saint for, uh, for sailing. And they considered it a, a good sign because it meant that he was looking out for you in an electrical storm. Well, this whole situation, this whole St. Elmo's fire, all this, I encourage you even to take some, uh, look at some, some pictures of it later on. Some, there's some neat images of, of St. Elmo's fire. It warns bystanders of electricity in the air. It communicates a charged atmosphere where at any time, Lightning could break out and cause massive amounts of destruction or even death. It signals this seemingly omnipresent enemy which is just waiting to make its move, warning those that are near. 
And this is actually a pretty appropriate description of the atmosphere that Jesus actually finds himself in in Mark chapter 2. With every word that Jesus utters, every miracle that he performs, the air is becoming more and more charged with electricity. The crowds are becoming more full. The Pharisees are becoming more and more agitated. This is because, as we learned the last couple of weeks, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ is combating the kingdom of man, the kingdom of darkness. He is stirring up the enemy which has had its grip upon the heart of the people of Israel for generations. And this kingdom of God, which is being ushered in, rightly taking over, but it is not without a conflict that is going on. What we'll notice this morning is that because the conflict of opposing kingdoms, it is a reality, is a real thing, that we must follow the one with true authority in this world. As we're late, uh, looking at this, this text, and you maybe even notice whether it's from the newsletter that went out earlier this week uh, or whether it's just now, you're saying, wow, we are going through a lot of verses this morning. Uh, Mark 2, 1 through 3, 6. Why such a large chunk? I felt it appropriate to actually say something about that. Uh, we could obviously take a look at just each of these sections in and of themselves, and there is so much truth that we can uh, digest from each one of them on their own merit. And they have their own particular points of application, even each one has only read 17 verses. However, by looking at them together, we see a a thread that is going to be running throughout that connects them that Mark wants us to see. It is marked off, actually, if you have your Bibles open, it is actually marked off in 2.1 and then in 3.6 actually by by Jesus' travels. Uh, which is a common tactic employed by the gospel writers uh, to designate a new section. There is a a new section uh, worthy of our consideration as Jesus is is moving around, but Mark groups these together uh, for us to look into. The thread that we see throughout all of them through chapter 3, verse 6, is conflict. And the first thing we notice is there is this bold declaration that Jesus makes of its present of its presence, that it is indeed there, a conflict which is going on. So the conflict that is announced. So we'll actually see that Jesus is here claiming his authority that because the conflict is real, that we too need to be bold in our faith, actually like this man's th- uh, four friends were. Uh, years ago, there was a, a large statue of Christ that was erected in the Andes Mountains on the border between Argentina and Chile, called Christ of the Andes. It exists, just confirmed uh, with Hudson and Susie, uh, called Christ of the Andes. The statue, this is not the, the one in Rio, the, you know, the enormous one, uh, but this statue symbolizes a pledge between the two countries that as long as the statue stands, there will be peace between Chile and Argentina. Shortly after the statue was erected, the Chileans apparently began to protest that they had been slighted. The statue had its back turned to Chile. And just when tempers were at their highest, in Chile, a Chilean newspaper saved the day. In an editorial that not only satisfied the people, but made them laugh, he simply said, the people of Argentina need more watching over than the Chileans. 
Conflict can be something that can be playful, if you will, or even relatively light at times. Something to joke around with because, after all, in this case, it was just only a statue, you know, in theory. The conflict presented before us in Mark chapter 2 is anything but that. Anything but light. Anything but trivial. Stakes are high. Life and death are in the balance. The scene is something out of a movie. Jesus in a house that is absolutely filled to the brim with people. I have been to Disney World. I have been in mosh pits. I have ridden on airplanes where everyone has this weird obsession with with being the first one in line and getting into the airplane before anyone else just to sit and wait. Only Only just to wait in your seat. None of these things represent the crowd which was here in Capernaum. There was a desperation there to hear from this teacher, to see him heal others or maybe be healed themselves. In the middle of this home, verse 6 tells us that there were scribes present. Luke adds actually to this account uh, when he says, well, that there were scribes and Pharisees that were there. A close connection were made between these two groups of people, these religious leaders. There are these scribes, these Pharisees, that are there in the house also. It is these scribes and Pharisees which represent, as we see, this opposing kingdom to the one of Christ that is being ushered in. These are the religious leaders of the day, the ones the people look to for religious direction and instruction, as Pete was telling us earlier this morning. Just like in our day, simplicity is not a characteristic, though, of religious culture. However, the Pharisees had a great deal of authority among the people, both as it pertained to religious matters as well as to civil matters. While they claimed to uphold the law and to have a great reverence for Moses and the law of Moses, they used God's word as a tool to exercise power and to hold the people of Israel in subjection to them. Jesus would go on later to call them hypocrites, to call them abusers, to call them arrogant, to call them lovers of praise. They represent a kingdom which holds man at its core and at its center. A kingdom which seeks to put man upon the throne. A kingdom which we are all born into and which we are all familiar with and which is natural in our own hearts. That Christ is here to combat. It is the natural ruler of our hearts which is able to give lip service to God yet is unaffected by the majesty and authority of Jesus. Even the addition of the posture of the scribes, if you notice that in verse 6, also is noteworthy, saying that they are sitting in this room filled with chaos. They are sitting down at this position of honor. All these people, so many people, we can't even come through the door, and they're, they're there sitting down. As the dust and dirt from the ceiling begins to fall down on them, they merely sit and question the rightful authority of this man. The kingdom which they have in their hearts is a kingdom of man. 
Jesus is seeking to overthrow this kingdom by expressing his authority over not only all things physical, but spiritual as well. After the friends lower the paralytic through the roof, Jesus makes this surprising declaration. Did you notice how surprising it was that his sins were forgiven? This is a proclamation that not only is Jesus the anticipated Messiah, saying that he is the one that they have been waiting for, but that he is indeed God, is what he's saying. Your sins are forgiven. The scribes acknowledge this. They see this. They know that that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And it enrages them because they do not believe. He shows them the authority which he wields by healing the man of his paralysis. It says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Jesus is making a statement that cannot be missed. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It says in Psalm 24.1, the kingdom which is of death and sickness and lies is being pushed back. If Jesus can heal a man of paralysis, which can be seen, he too has the power to forgive sins. It is a statement for the scribes and Pharisees to hear. It is one also for the crowd to hear. Christ wields the arm of God Almighty. The contrast is so stark between those of faith in the authority of Christ, believing that Christ holds all authority, and those who do not possess this faith. Those with faith are willing to do whatever it takes to honor that authority, to expose others to it. Bringing your friend to Christ, opening a hole in the roof, looking like an idiot in front of all these people, you don't care. Knocking down barriers, pushing through obstacles. Why? Because Christ rules. The real paralytic was the Pharisees and the scribes sitting there. They could have been directing traffic, but instead of showing love, there was only criticism. Instead of warmth, there's just indifference. Who does this Jesus think that he is? Trying to get me to celebrate this. Trying to get me out of my chair and do something. Trying to get me to have compassion. What right does he have? Every right. What authority are you bowing before? Is it before the kingdom of man? And where we are content sitting in our chairs while the authority of Jesus is on full display, getting dust and dirt simply on our laps. Or do we recognize the power and authority of King Jesus and willing to let others see that too, to want others to be exposed to it also, opening up roofs, bringing people in, having our own hearts shaped and affected by who Jesus Christ is. In case there's any more clarity that's needed, 
And Mark goes on and says, it's not just this. This isn't just the only conflict. This just isn't the only depiction of the conflict right here. There's more clarity that's added. This conflict is further defined by Jesus' interactions with others. There's well, even the next section, this conflict is further defined that Jesus, he came for sinners. He talks about this, who it is that he is spending time with in verses 13 through 17. Jesus is not rubbing elbows with the elite of Jerusalem. He invites the tax collectors to come to him. And he, he sits and dines with the sinners. You see, there was clarity that was needed on Jesus' mission. is a very different mission that Jesus is on as he is bringing about his kingdom than the mission which is of the kingdom of man. Jesus calls Levi, that is Matthew, the tax collector, to follow after him. If you don't know what all the fuss is about with the tax collector, perhaps you are an undercover IRS agent or maybe just an accountant. Uh, Tax collectors were notorious for their shady dealings. As the Romans were the presiding power, they employed locals like the Jews to collect the taxes for the Romans. They would require an amount from each person, but had no concern about what the tax collectors would actually charge insofar as the Romans would get what they were asking for. You ask for as much as you want, as long as we get our cut, as long as we're still getting the taxes from the people. Tax collectors with the Roman army behind them would ask for exorbitant amounts to keep and then keep whatever was left over. They were cheats. They were liars. Moreover, they were employed by the enemy. They were practical Romans and traitors in the eyes of the Jews. There was nothing redeemable about them. They were outcasts. They were too Roman for the Jews and too Jewish for the Romans. They would often embrace this villainous caricature and dive headlong into sin and debauchery knowing that their reputation was already tattered. It is this disrespectful, treasonous cheat which Jesus chooses to invite to come and follow him. And Jesus makes a practice of this and goes to the homes of these outcasts. He associates with the lowly, reaches those who have no disillusionments about their spiritual poverty, about their spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus says in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is Jesus' mission, not to be served by the dignitaries of the empire, but to serve. He came to meet those who know their brokenness, not who thinks that they have all their li- everything in their life all pulled together. There is no kingdom of God for those who think they're doing just fine on their own. There's no kingdom of God for those who think they're doing just fine all on their own. This is the conflict, again, which is taking place. Jesus is again proclaiming his kingdom and the adherents, those who belong to this kingdom. Those who dine with Christ are the broken, the meek, and the lowly. 
The kingdom which opposes this wants a kingdom for the successful, for the honorable, for the respected. These are the ones that ought to be praised and glorified. These are the ones who deserve to be in the presence of the Messiah. This story goes of this large block of marble which was purchased uh, by the great sculptor and Ninja Turtle Donatello. Uh, in the uh, late 15th, early 16th century, uh, the Italian sculptor. Um, and as he received this enormous block of marble, he had these ideas of actually even fashioning uh, a, a, a biblical character of it, a prophet out of it. But as he's looking at this, this block of marble, he says, this marble isn't good enough. It has too many imperfections. There are too many things which are wrong with it. So what he ended up doing with it, actually, is he ended up just leaving it. He left it in a, in a churchyard just to be disposed of for whoever wanted it, for whoever, whatever needed to happen to it. He wasn't concerned with it. He just left it by. And do you know who eventually came by to pick it up? It's Michelangelo. And it was out of that block of marble that he created, that he chiseled, that he sculpted the David. This is a picture, an image of even what Christ has come to do of how we have these expectations of what we think the kingdom of God is to look like. We have these expectations of those that belong to the kingdom of God. Say, no, it has to be the successful, it has to be the driven, it has to be ones that look a certain way, that act a certain way. But the ones that Christ is inviting in are those that maybe we would not expect. Or those that know their brokenness, or those that know their deficiencies, or ones that know that they are a broken piece of marble. But they know that in the hands of God Almighty, in the hands of Jesus Christ, that He fashions and forms us into the precise image that He desires. In Ephesians 2:10, it says, "For we are His workmanship." created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How quickly we disregard this knowledge, though. Perhaps with others, we, we acknowledge that Jesus can change anyone. We acknowledge that the gospel is, yes, it is indeed, it is for sinners. But we speak about and treat certain types of sinners differently than others. We find there are respectable sins for people to commit and disrespectful ones. And we, without even realizing, we develop attitudes like the Pharisees that look down on the tax collectors and the sinners of our world. Or perhaps we have the hardest time believing this about ourselves. We fail to see the mission which Christ is accomplishing in us. That we are indeed his workmanship if we are found in Christ. Trusting that his work on the cross and the empty tomb is sufficient. It's enough for our salvation. Christ takes the broken things of our lives, even the things that feel like they are getting more and more broken. Yet Christ is in that exposing our hearts. He is exposing us to who we are. He is doing a work to fashion you, to make you more like himself. He has come to save sinners. He has come to save the sick, not the self-perceived well. This conflict between the kingdom of man 
and the kingdom of God is perhaps no more clearly seen as he goes on. And he says it's, it's seen in the sphere of worship. And worship of all else is where this is seen. This is the location of the conflict. I'm going to read uh, the rest of, of our passage together, uh, starting in verse 18, going through chapter 3 and verse 6. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast? While the bridegroom is with them, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How? To destroy him. Each of these accounts describe a view of worship which is distorted in the false kingdom that needs to be restored. John the, the, the Baptist's disciples, as, uh, as the, the Pharisees' disciples as well, were fasting, it says, while Jesus is there feasting with sinners. How could Jesus be so unspiritual? See, Scripture is commanded, according to God's Word, Scripture is only commanded once a year for there to be this national fast on the Day of Atonement. However, during Jesus' time, the Pharisees had declared a fast twice a week. Assumption that the most spiritual was the most serious. Whoever took their fast the most seriously, they were the ones that had the greatest spirituality. So the Pharisees would whiten their faces. They would put ashes on their head. They would wear shoddy clothes. They wouldn't wash themselves during these times. The expression of the act of worship became more valuable than the heart of worship. Instead, Jesus points them to a wedding feast. After an ancient Jewish wedding, the couple would stay at home for a week of an open house of which 
And in, in this open house, there was this continual feasting, continual celebration that would take place. It sounds awesome. The bride and the groom were treated like a king and a queen uh, for that week. And in fact, sometimes they would have crowns that they, they would wear as well. They were attended by chosen friends known as the guests of the bridegroom, which literally means the children of the bride's chamber. Their guests were exempted from all fasting through a rabbinical rule which said, all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen the joy. Presence with the bridegroom. Presence with Jesus is to be valued above all things. To be with Christ. That is what we long for. That is what we look for. And Christ is there in their midst. Even today, God in his mercy and in his grace, even though Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, through God's Spirit, whom he has sent to us, whom he has given to us, he allows us to continue to be in the presence of Christ. We are still promised access to the Son through the Holy Spirit. It is through the Holy Spirit, as we read in Scripture, that we are with the Son. When we gather at church to worship, Christ is here. By God's Spirit, we are with the Son. And in a profound and in a spiritual way, even when we partake of the bread and the cup in communion by the Holy Spirit, we are in the presence of Jesus Christ. This Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within you gives you access to the one who offers you perpetual wedding joy for those who would have it. Jesus rules our worship. Even when it comes to our Sabbath honoring, Jesus states that if even David could pluck the heads of grain, how much more can the Lord of the Sabbath? And as he heals the hand of the withered man, Jesus proclaims his authority over those which he himself has instituted. When man takes control and tells God what is good and what is not, what we end up with are whitened faces and ashy heads and hungry bellies. We end up with man on the throne, dictating what God is pleased with. We say what God is pleased with. When we value our experiences over the truth, when we worship God on our own terms, in our own way, in our own timing, say, no, God doesn't want me to be better outside of church. Or, I don't think that that's something that I need to honor, that I need to obey, dictating what God ought to do with us. When we refuse to see all of life as worship unto God, we join in with the kingdom of man. What we need is a uh, favorite Dean Aldis quote, uh, the original quote by Thomas Chalmers, we need the expulsive power of a new affection. If you are cleaning out a water line, you could grab a toothpick and scrape off the sides of any mildew or calcium or buildup there on the inside of it, or with enough pressure as the clean water explodes through. 
It takes all the gunk and the grime right out with it. This is what Jesus is saying about the wineskins as well. When Jesus fills the wineskins of our lives, the swelling within stretches us to new limits, expelling unneeded things. Old wineskins of previous religious structures must give way. Our old selves are old wineskins. We need Christ to take and renew our habits, our intellect, our customs, our comforts, renew them to hold new wine. It is a charged atmosphere Jesus is in. And you might have a charged atmosphere in your heart right now. Fighting the old kingdom and the kingdom of God, which is seeking to make all things new. Jesus fought this conflict. He entered into it. It was important. It was what he came to do to bring in this kingdom. Jesus fought so that we can fight. Jesus, it says in Galatians chapter 5, For you were called to freedom, brothers. When we do not use your freedom as opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against, they are at war with the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It is the love of the bridegroom which expels the remnants of the old man out. May Christ continue to cleanse you as you pursue him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we, we give you thanks, Lord, for the, the power that is found in Christ. God, we thank you for the conflict which Christ entered into for us. This old way, this old kingdom which continues to pursue us, which continues to seek its dominance over us. And Lord, in the flesh, we know how weak we can easily be. But Lord, you promise us victory. Have you bring us into the kingdom of God, to enter into that which Jesus is doing, not just in our hearts, but all over the world. Lord, I pray that we would know that kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to live in it by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.